Ben Orenstein. Welcome back to the ND Hackers podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm excited to do this uh, new format thing. Yeah, it's just a more casual format, just us talking and catching up on what's going on. When we last spoke, it was a few months ago on the podcast, you started a screen sharing app called Tuple last year, and you had just hit the point of ramen profitability, about $20,000 a month in revenue. So why don't you let us know what's new with your app Tuple? Yeah, totally. So I've been working on this app for a while. Uh, I have two co-founders. I had an interesting thing happen recently that I thought might be some good fodder for us to talk about, which uh, is sort of the story of how we ended up shipping this uh, fairly large feature for us. So we've been developing this app for about a year and we launched in January. And basically, since launch, people have been asking us for this one particular feature, which is video support. So Tuple is a pair programming app. And so we have screen share. So you share your desktop and we have audio so you can talk. But people were pretty frequently saying, like, I really want to be able to see the person that I'm pair programming with. And that way I can sort of see if they're actually following what I'm doing or if they're really bored and they need a break or if they're just checked out or they're angry or, or whatever. There's just so much detail in like, the human face and they want to be able to see each other. And we've had customers tell us, yo, I'm, I'm using a second app to do a video call at the same time as I'm using Tuple. And it's, would be anno- it's kind of annoying. It'd be great if I could just use Tuple to, to do all this. It's always been in our vision for the product. We always wanted to ship this. But it really intimidated us. Uh, we were scared about the UX of how it should work. And also the technical complexity of just implementing like real-time video streaming on top of our app. So for a long time, we, we put it off. And there was an interesting turning point that happened recently, which is yet another person emailed saying, Hey, I would love video support. And I kind of gave him my like by now standard spiel, which is like, yeah, totally agree. I think it's a great idea. We're just a little bit worried about the complexity. So it's hard to prioritize. And he shared a story. And, th- and this person was a, a startup founder himself. And he said, in the early days of my company, there was this one feature that everyone was always asking for. And it intimidated me. But eventually, I just decided to sit down and roll up my sleeves and actually get this thing done. And it took a few weeks, but eventually I was able to ship something that I was proud of. And that was the turning point for our company where we went from kind of a, like a side project to a really useful solving real business problems kind of company that really has achieved product market fit. And that was like a, a major milestone for them. And so I, I read that message. And I, I took it to heart. I, I, got, I got kind of inspired. It really, it really resonated with me. And so I said, all right, we got to do this thing. And so I, I made a plan. And I think the plan and, and what we did maybe might be useful for other people that are dealing with uh, something similar. Cool. Let's hear it. I have two co-founders. And we're all technical. We're all developers. But one of us was on vacation. So <laughs> I said, so my, my second co-founder, Spencer, has been doing a lot of the product development. And so I, I sat down with Spencer. and I was like, hey, I think we should try to do this now. I think, I think it's time for video. And at first, he was like definitely resistant. He was the one who would have to write all the code. And having been in that position too, like you're just picturing all these difficulties. You're, you're picturing all the edge cases and the challenges, and it, it feels big and overwhelming. And so he was kind of against it. And what I eventually pitched him on was, all right, let's spend one week on this. And we'll just get a sense of how big this might be. So if we spend a week and it looks like, okay, this is actually a 10-week project, okay, maybe we reevaluate and step back from that. But let's at least... Let's at least make our decision based on some real data and not just how it makes us feel when we consider shipping this feature. Code's weird like that, where sometimes you have to dip your toe in the water to just figure yeah. out what you're dealing with. Like You can't just predict straight out of the gate, oh, this is going to take exactly one week, or this is going yes, to take exactly totally. one month. You don't know. Absolutely. And, and yeah, and so I think this approach is, is kind of good in general. And this is something I picked up from my days uh, working at a consultancy, is we would try to do these sort of minimal efforts 
in order to, to find information. Because this, I just, we've never found a way where you can learn as much as actually trying to implement the feature. And then you bump into the things and then you start to get a sense of, okay, here's what this work might look like and what actually might be left to, to complete this feature. Yeah, my favorite analogy for this is imagine you're charting a course on a map. From a zoomed out point of view, you're just going to see point A and point B, and you're probably going to draw a straight line between the two. But then when you actually start out on your track, you run into all these obstacles. You've got mountains and rivers and valleys and forests that you can't really see when you're zoomed out. And so your straight line turns into a very squiggling line. And so if you don't really know the terrain for something in detail, you're probably always going to underestimate how long it takes to get done. Mm-hmm. Yes, Absolutely this pitch is what actually got the ball rolling or this, this sort of made Spencer feel good enough about it where it's like, okay, look, if worst case scenario, we'll burn a week on this and, and determine that it's actually a huge feature and we'll have lost the week and that'll be too bad or sort of more or less lost the week, but that's okay. Like we're, we're willing to place a bet on this and see how it goes. So we spent the week and during that week, two things happened. So first of all, Spencer went off and, and the mission was just kind of determine the technical feasibility and complexity of this. So it wasn't like try to ship the perfect full version of this because we know exactly what it should look like. It was more just like, see how hard this is going to be, uh, which is a much more tractable problem. And while he was doing that, I actually stepped back and started writing up a, a design document about how I thought the user experience should work for this feature. That parallel effort, I think, was really useful, particularly in this case, because there wasn't just technical complexity, there was UX complexity. And the nice thing that happened is after like a day or two, Spencer said, actually, you know, this is not as bad as I thought it was going to be. I think the basics are, are fairly straightforward. And I had written up a UX document and then shared it with several of our customers and iterated on that and gotten feedback. And I felt like I had a pretty good description of how this should work. And so we kind of actually, after just a few days, had both pieces in place that then made future progress really easy. I like how you gave yourself permission to fail. You kind of scoped it to a week. So worst possible case scenario, this feature really sucks. It's just as hairy as you thought. And you wasted one week of time investigating it and decided not to do it. And I think when you frame it like that, it's suddenly not as scary as it used to be. And this big hairy feature that you didn't really want to start, suddenly it feels easier to start. Totally. I've just started to read Basecamp's book, Shape Up, which I think is really useful. It's about their product development approach. And they talk about these six-week things, and they call them bets. They're not really, uh, they don't call them sprints because that's sort of a, a metaphor they don't love. But they, it's like we're, we're putting a bet that this is a useful thing to try to add to the product and that it will turn out well if, if we do it. And that was how I was thinking about that one week bet where it's actually not a huge bet. It's like one week is not a huge deal. You might take a week of vacation and not really worry about it. But there's a sort of asymmetric upside there where it's like because this has been asked for, for so much, this could really improve our like, product market fit, make our customers even, even happier. Yeah, let's talk about feature requests from customers, because I'm sure you guys get all sorts of requests from customers at Tuple. How do you know, how do you decide which requests to listen to and which ones to put on hold or just flat out say no to? I don't know that I have like a, a concrete system for this. I'm kind of doing it by intuition and feel. I, I guess my, my like rough rule is kind of, we should have a vision of how the product, like of what kind of product we want to build and work on and like what kind of company and lifestyle we want to have and all that. So that should inform what we actually end up building. I don't know. I was actually just asking my co-host, my podcast co-host, this the other day. Is like, do you think there's it's ever the case that you should you could get a request for a thing in the product thousands of times, hundreds of times, and ignore it hmm. and be right? And I'm not totally sure what the answer is there. Like, I, I think if you care a lot about building exactly the kind of product that you think should exist, it could be the case that like you've made a very intentional, disciplined decision that like, look, we will never support feature X because we think it's a bad idea. 
And so even if people ask you for this all the time, you might be right. Uh, you might be very justified in, in ignoring that. I would default in general towards listening to the customers and giving them what they want. But I think there's, it's, it's not a, I don't think there's a, a very clear 100% answer here. Yeah. I get a lot of feedback with Andy Hackers. And I found that it's way more concentrated and consistent when I'm doing something wrong. So earlier this year, I introduced a bunch of UX changes that weren't very popular to say the least. And I heard a steady drumbeat of the same exact feedback day after day, week after week. Mm-hmm. Whereas when things are going right, the feedback is all over the place. It's totally scattershot. And that's kind of where your judgment has to come into play. Because you're like, okay, well, what am I going to actually build? How do I prioritize what to build? And also your users probably aren't product designers. Like They can tell you what their pain points are. and They can tell you what's annoying them. But unless the solution is really obvious, they're probably not going to tell you the exact best solution to build. So yeah, just kind of curious how you handle those situations where user feedback is ambiguous. Yeah, I'm kind of just feeling it out as I go. I don't think I'm an amazing product manager yet. So I'm, I'm kind of just going off a lot of intuitions and seeing what I think. I, I think maybe one thing that's helping us lately, uh, or from the beginning really, is that we chose a niche early on. So we didn't want to make generic screen sharing or generic video chat or anything. We want to make a, a really good pair programming tool. And so when feature requests come in, sometimes they don't make sense given that niching. Like sometimes people will say, oh, like I would love to do a video chat with like 10 people so I can do, we can do our standups on Tuple. And it's like, uh, yeah, I, c- I could see why you would want that. Um, it's kind of nice to have just one communication tool, but it doesn't match the niche that we're trying to, to serve really well right now. And maybe one day we expand outside that niche. But for now, having that kind of positioning has helped us determine whether feature requests make sense. Totally. You got to know what you're about. You got to know sort of the fundamentals behind your strategy, what direction you're headed in, what direction you're not headed in, in order to sort through these requests and figure out which ones actually align with you. Yes. So one other thing that I think I found useful when people ask for things is to have a public roadmap. So we have a roadmap uh, link that we send people to. And it shows like what, were we, what, we've, what we finished building recently and what we plan on shipping in the next couple of months. And then some smaller things that we hope to just kind of fit in around the edges. And that has been really useful. I think a lot of the times people send requests and we want to make sure they feel heard and like they understand like that we have a plan and like where their idea might fit into our plan. And so being able to share that, like like video was on there for a while. And we're like people would say, oh, we really want video. And we say, yes, we totally agree. Hey, check it out. It's on the roadmap. We're going to build this. Like we hear you and, and your thing has been prioritized. Super smart. Because I find myself telling people the same things over and over again. Oh yeah, that feature's coming. It'll be here in a few months. But if I just had a link posted up somewhere, then people could check that instead of emailing me. Yeah, I think it makes it more real because I think the default customer support request is like, yes, thank you for that idea. That's very good. We'll, uh, we'll consider that. And I think everyone kind of knows that means like, like your chance of that actually happening is, is kind of low-ish yeah. or is you know, not worth betting on. Whereas if, if we say, hey, look, this, we, we put this on a public page. Like we wrote it down. It's, we mean it for real. You know, I find myself saying no a lot too. People get a lot of no's. Like I'm probably never going to build a mobile app for indie hackers. It's just not on the roadmap. Yeah, and but in that case, like I think when you're saying no, that the roadmap can also be useful. Where it's like you know, no, I, I don't plan on doing that. But if you are curious about the other stuff, like check this out. And because someone might just be like, oh, well, I wanted that, but the fact that I can see other cool stuff coming, you know, I'm I'm still excited about using. Yes, yeah. you know what? I think you've convinced me. I'm going to try this out for any hackers at some point. We'll see. I don't know when it's on my my feature roadmap to create a feature roadmap. But let's switch gears for a second. Let's talk about your launch. You mentioned that Tuple launched back in January. But that wasn't really a real launch. That was just you guys onboarding your first customers off your email list. Nobody could just go to your website and create a Tuple account to download the app. 
that's all going to change soon. This month in August, you're doing a real launch. You're opening your doors to everybody. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that and what you hope to accomplish. Yeah. Uh, thank you for clarifying that and <laughs> making sure I uh, the, the distinction is there. Yeah. So in January, we launched... It was a private launch. It was an alpha, actually. And we launched to people that had already prepaid for the app. So while we were building it, I was off selling it. Uh, and then in January, we launched to about 10 teams who had prepaid for access. And since then, we've been in early access. So we're, uh, we've been inviting people in cohorts and letting them come in. But we, you still can't go to the, the website and sign up. Uh, you have to be invited. But that is changing uh, in August. Uh, exact date TBD. Uh, hopefully, we'll know soon. And so we want to have... So the, the distinction is the new launch will be like, you can just go to the website. You can just sign up. There'll be pricing there. There'll be public. You don't have to talk to us. We feel good enough about our self-serve sign up and, and onboarding and all that to let people just come in. I really love the way you guys have done things because a lot of people visualize launch as the singular moment in time where before that, no one's ever heard of what you're doing. No one's seen it. No one's touched it. But then you launch and that's sort of your initial unveiling to the world. Whereas with Tuple, you guys have been working on this app for well over a year now and you already have paying customers. In fact, you already have like $20,000 in monthly recurring revenue, more than that now. So you already know the app works. You already know that people find it valuable enough to pay for it. As we just discussed, you're already talking to your customers and implementing missing features. There's not a huge question mark in your mind about how this is going to do, right? You're not in the dark about how people are going to react. You prepared for this moment for a year and now you can go into your launch confident that people are going to like it and find it useful. Yeah, that was that was always the plan for us, uh, and that was the kind of like the kind of company we wanted to build, like the kind of posture we wanted to have was we wanted to self fund it so that there was no outside pressure to move faster or hit certain targets that we weren't in control of, and so we wanted to invest a substantial amount of time where access to the product was limited, so that we could iron out the issues. I didn't want to have thousands of people try it and find it wanting. I wanted to control access quite a bit, and we've steadily been loosening it. But it was useful early on to have that confidence that like, okay, if everyone hates this for some reason, it'll only be like, a, like 20 people or 30 people. And that way we can you know, fix it and iterate and make it better before the wide world gets exposure to it. Yeah. Uh, and that's been like very calming for us. And it, it, does, it is interesting because it changes the, the nature of this public launch that's coming up. I'm not expecting it to be an enormous launch. I'm hoping to have like a nice sort of bottom line benefit from it at the end of the day. And I have some ideas for kind of goosing it a little bit. But it's not going to be like, okay, this launch kind of makes or breaks us or it's going to have a huge impact on our financials and we need to have a certain number show up or something like that. Uh, and that actually makes it feel better. I don't feel like we have like a big... We're not, there's not a big risk on this. I love that. I feel kind of the same way. I don't like having some big flashy launch. I don't like putting all my eggs in one basket and having this one huge day where it has to go right. And if it fails, my entire business is screwed and I'm sweating bullets the whole time up to launch. Uh, it just seems stressful. It doesn't seem fun. Yes. I'd much rather have a launch that's just kind of one day among others, you know, one of numerous things that I'm doing to grow my business. And I'm not worrying I have to check every single box to have the absolutely perfect textbook launch. Right. Yeah. And like, say something terrible happens, the app goes down, or like one of our providers happens to have downtime or something. It's just like, if we had bet everything on one day, that would be particularly horrific, I think. Yep. So what's your launch plan here? Do you guys have any particular strategy? Are you going to put it up on Hacker News or Product Hunt? I think we'll probably put it on all those things. One thing that has worked well for us in the past has been recruiting our existing happy customers to sort of act as advocates for us. So uh, not too long ago, Slack announced that they were moving, removing remote control from their Slack calls product. This announcement went out and I actually emailed our customers and said, Hey, I think there are going to be a lot of companies who all of a sudden are going to be looking for a solution for this. If you wouldn't mind hopping on Twitter 
and just sharing your experiences with the app and whether or not you like it, that would be really helpful. And a lot of people did. There was just this kind of huge wave of our customers singing our praises at the exact same time that a bunch of people were like mad at Slack and looking for a, 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 new, a new answer there. And that was like a, probably our best sign-up day yet was, was when that happened. Yeah, you built up a lot so, of goodwill with your customers. Yeah, exactly. After building that bank account up for a little while, uh, you can occasionally draw against it. And so probably, I think we'll probably have some element of that in our launch. Um, I wouldn't say I'm that good at launches, so I, I kind of need to do some research and talk to people who are great at this, so like, like generating more buzz. One thing I think we will do is we have been, uh, up until today, uh, or actually up through including today, we charge for trials. So we uh, have a thing where it's 100 bucks for your first month to use Tuple regardless of team size. And that is a friction point, like a kind of an intentional friction point where we want customers who are serious who have already gone through the purchasing process can put down a real corporate credit card that we can just charge later, things like that. And that has been useful and has helped us control that growth, which I've been talking about. But I think for launch, to kind of give a little extra, pour a little extra gas on the fire, we have some ideas around a special kind of launch discount during that window. Cool. Besides uh, opening the doors to everybody, obviously, and making Tuple just publicly available, is there any other thing you want to test or accomplish by, by launching? So this is this is one thing that we kind of can't shake, which is people assume if they can't sign up for it, it's in beta and it's not very good. I, I keep running into this objection where like we'll send somebody an invite and they'll be like, "You want me to pay for beta software?" And I'm like, "Well, we're not in beta. We've been like we've we have hundreds of customers. We've been this has been live for months now." And they're like, "Yeah, but like I can't sign up for it. It's in beta." Uh, so I, I kind of can't shake that <laughs> that thing. And so one thing that I'm kind of just hoping will be like, okay, once there's public pricing, once you can actually sign up for it, uh, it will feel to the more risk-averse people like this is a real product I can trust more. Yes. So this is the good thing about doing sales because you're actually talking to people. So when they tell you they're not going to buy, you actually know, you actually learn what that reason is. Whereas most people who aren't talking to every customer, they have no idea. They're just like, yeah, 100 people showed up to my website today, but nobody signed up. I wonder why. And they'll never know. Totally. Yeah. I've, I've tried to more or less engineer a lot of tripwires, a lot of places where people can give us feedback. Like we have in-app feedback and like website feedback and we send product market fit survey questions and we just have a lot of opportunities for people to ask us things or tell us things. And I found that to be very useful. Like I, I like to make sure that I have... As we've made our, our sales process, our onboarding process more automatic, I've tried to make sure it doesn't get too automatic. Like there's still a steady stream of feedback coming from new and existing customers in that we're paying attention to. Because I think that's where you start to really fall apart. Like pe- when people say nice things about us, uh, it's often that we're so responsive. And so like it's, this is, the fact that we're paying attention to our current customers is making the product better, but it's also getting us new customers. So even though it's time-consuming and hard, uh, it feels like something that's, that's important for the health of the business. So what's in these product market fit surveys that you're sending out? Is it just the superhuman questions? Like how disappointed would you be if you could no longer use Tuple? It is. That whole set of questions? Yeah, it is currently like that. It's like how disappointed would you be if it went away? And then what value do you get out of it? And um, what can we improve about the product for you? Which has been super useful. Let's just go to all like all three of us, of the co-founders. And so it's nice to have that steady drip of those. That, that just goes out automatically after you've been a user for like a week or something like that. But I also will occasionally just email everybody and say like, what's the one thing we could do to improve the product for you? Uh, and that's and like, don't no survey, just like just reply to this email, like keep it really, really frictionless. Last time I did that, we got a ton of feedback. Uh, and that really helped us like set the roadmap for the next couple months. I like that. Just like, what's the one thing? People don't mm-hmm. like 
long surveys. People don't want to answer 100 questions, but it makes sense that if you ask just one question, response rates will go up. Definitely. Yeah. And, and the completion rate on that survey that we send out, the product market fit one, is only, I think it's only four questions. And it's still like the completion rate is like 50% or 40% or something. So a lot of people just get there and just like, nope, never mind. I'm not doing this. <laughs> Versus the email one got tons and tons of people are still responding to that email that I sent. Like it's like two months old now. Uh, but they, I'm st- they're still coming in. Yeah. I send out surveys for indie hackers. The first one gets sent a day or two after you join. And then I send another one 60 days after you join. And that one hasn't gone out to anybody yet because I set it up less than 60 days ago. But my mm-hmm. first survey, I'm looking at it right now. The average time to completion is 12 and a half minutes. The completion rate is 83%, which is super high. Wow. And it's got like seven questions on there. But I feel bad looking at it because in the email, I'm like, oh yeah, this will only take three or four yeah. minutes. Uh, but apparently it takes 12. So. I was surprised at that. So like we, our four question survey has a completion time of like five and a half minutes. And I would have guessed it'd be like one minute, but yeah. I guess not. People take their time. They're thoughtful. Yep. Appreciate it. Let's talk about your podcast. You briefly mentioned it earlier. It's called The Art of Product. It's you and Derek Reimer just kind of riffing off each other. You're both talking about what you're working on. I joined as a listener about 15 episodes ago, which was right when Derek's business sort of imploded. It's when he decided to wind it down and stop working on it. And it's a pretty interesting show now. It's this very stark dichotomy where on one hand, there's you, and you're talking about Tuple and all the great things that are going on, all these fortuitous events that are happening to you. And it just seems like this nonstop upward trajectory. And then every week Derek comes on and he's in limbo. He's just trying to figure out what he's going to work on. And he's sort of in the dumps about it. And I don't know. I don't really have any questions about the podcast. It's just interesting to listen to. So I recommend people listening to this. Go check it out. How do you feel about the podcast, Ben? How's it going? Uh, it's going great. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite things to do. It doesn't feel like work at all. And granted, we've outsourced like the editing and the publishing and all that. So it, it actually is very little work. But I've hosted a weekly podcast for six or seven years now straight. And I just really love it. It's, I find it super fun. It doesn't feel hard to me. I was talking to Paul Jarvis, who does a weekly newsletter and has done so for... He's got like a thousand of them or something. And I'm like, how do you stick with that? It's like, oh, it just doesn't feel like work for me. And I was like, oh, I guess that's just podcasting for me. Like, There's something that doesn't feel like work for a lot of people. And this is, this is it for me. So I, I love it. Uh, that, that thing you talked about is, is an interesting dynamic now. And it's it's, I guess it's kind of the, it's the other side of the sword of the double-edged sword of working in public. So because Derek and I are sharing our journey live, we've been able to get a lot of interest and early customers for the products that we're building. So it's been super helpful. Like, and, and often customers will sign up for Tuple and they're like, oh, like they'll ask me about something, but they'll say, by the way, I listen to Art of Products, so I know that you're thinking of this, this, and this. And they're already, they already have all this context, which is like just wonderful. And they feel sort of bought into the success, which is, is, is tremendous. I love that. Because Derek is now kind of between things and is figuring out his next thing, there, there's this sort of like unfortunate pressure where it's like, we're trying, to make, we're trying to make good radio, right? And like, I'm working on a thing and the thing is working pretty well. And so it's like he feels this uh, outside force to be like, all right, figure out the next thing. <laughs> when in reality, he just sort of wrapped up this last, his last effort. And so it's like, it's probably good to explore really widely right now and not to get too invested into any one thing and not plant any flags. But it's hard to show up for the recording and be like, yeah, I'm still thinking about stuff or I put up a landing page for this or I'm experimenting with that. So it's, uh, it's, it's a bit of a tricky situation. Yeah, I totally understand. I bet the pressure is immense for him. But as awful as this sounds, as a listener, I, I kind of like it. I like the fact that it's real. I like the juxtaposition between the two places where you guys are. And it's not just like, oh, everything I touch turns yeah. to gold instantly. It's, it's more like it's hard to figure out what to work on. And this is a window into what that's like. I think hearing somebody struggle while knowing that he's obviously talented, knowing that he's had some major successes in the past, 
makes it a little bit more okay for the rest of us to feel like we're not Absolutely. the only one struggling to figure this stuff out. Absolutely. And that was one of the core... Uh, I would say that's one of our core philosophies of the, the podcast and it has been since the beginning is that we're going to share everything, all the good stuff and the bad stuff. Uh, we think partly because we can help normalize failing and struggling and rough mental health days and bad stretches and disappointment and fear and all that. And I've got an email from people like thanking us for that and that, that openness. And so that's something that like, I, we fully intend to continue. I just launched a new feature on Indie Hackers. Well, I say launched. I should just say I added a new feature to Indie Hackers. It's a groups feature. And right now there's just one group. It's super minimal. It's a podcasters group. I actually invited you to it, Ben. The purpose of this particular group is just to give podcasters a, a place to talk shop and connect with other podcasters and people making a living from their podcast. But I've got a whole bunch of different other groups I want to launch. And hopefully by the time this episode is out, a few of them will be up and running. But I'm spending a lot of time trying to grow this group's feature. And it's tough because it's like growing a community from scratch. None of these groups have any users. And I've got to kind of kickstart them somehow. And it makes me think about where you are with Tuple. You've got a huge email list that you've been working through for the last six or eight months or whatever. And just sending out invites to people. But you're going to launch this month. Tuple's going to be open. And then you're going to be kind of in the wild where I am. Or you have to grow. Your email list is exhausted. Mm-hmm. You got to figure out other ways to bring users in the door. What's your plan for that right now? Fear, panic, uh, sleepless nights. <laughs> I don't really have a plan exactly. I have. I would say I have. I have high level plans. Mm-hmm. I have more or less made my living and my reputation teaching developers things, like making really good programming slash tech related content. And so, and I think I'm I'm good at it. I think I'm a good teacher. Uh, and I, so I, I feel pretty confident that I could, I could do that pretty well. And so I think that's probably going to be the core of our future marketing strategy will be write and create interesting, high quality things that programmers will find interesting. And hopefully they will then find their way into Tuple as a customer at some point. Yeah. And the cool thing is you guys are self-funded. You don't have any investors whatsoever breathing down your neck, telling you to grow faster. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of okay. If you try something and it works out well, that's, that's great. And if it doesn't, then that's fine too. No pressure. Just go on to the next thing. Yeah. And like we're fortunate enough that like our, our revenue is, is covering the business expenses plus all of ours. Like we're, we're, we're sustainable. And so growth is great and we want to. And we, like, we would love to have uh, you know, at least a part-time designer and things like that. So we'd love to keep growing. So we will try to. But it's not, it's not urgent. It's not like it was before where it's like, okay, if, if we don't keep growing revenue, this company will die eventually. What's the, uh, the and, price point for Tuple? Is it high enough that you guys can do direct sales profitably? It is high enough that we could do direct sales, I would say. So we have sort of a standard monthly price that we charge for people. But often people will reach out to us and say, hey, like we have like a bunch of developers. Um, and we think our use case is kind of special because of XYZ. And so I will I actually do sales and like sort of negotiate one-off deals with a lot of people. And the, the numbers are in the uh, like five to $10,000 a year kind of range um, for, for larger teams. This is not like the average price, but for, for big teams. And so I would say that starts to get to be the point where you could have someone profitably doing that. It certainly makes sense for me to do that. So uh, we'll see. Like we could eventually have a sales person, possibly. I'm not sure. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was talking to Sahil Lavingia from Gumroad about this. They grew Gumroad for like four or five years off the back of direct sales. They had a sales team, and I presume they are just talking to people, maybe emailing them or calling them up or something and trying to convince them to use Gumroad. And that's a pattern that I've seen with a lot of successful founders. So I'm always curious who's planning to use it, who's not, and why. Totally, yeah. I mean, it's, it does strike me that like there's a lot of people making content for developers out there. And so I can kind of try to compete with those folks for attention and all that. 
and I think I could compete okay, but it's sort of crowded. Whereas maybe you just want to go find people that you think would be good customers and talk to them as opposed to like kind of passively hoping they, they figure out you exist after consuming some of the stuff you've made. Yeah. I mean, I brought this up earlier, but the other good thing about sales is that you get feedback. I'm doing this for the podcasters group and the other groups on Indie Hackers as well. I'm just reaching out and inviting people to join individually and trying to get them participating. And, you know, it's not going to last forever. But even if I only do this for a month or two or three, uh, it's going to be a pretty good learning experience. I'm going to figure out a lot of stuff from those conversations. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, I, I think Nathan Barry has a great post on doing direct sales as a bootstrapped uh, startup. I think this like lays all this out nicely, including that point, which is you're getting feedback. And like just just by doing, I, I would say probably 90% of our customers do self-serve sign up. But the 10% that I am talking to are providing a lot of information. Like I'm, I'm talking to someone right now. And he said, Okay, like we, we sort of went through some of the sales process and came up with some pricing and some thoughts. Uh, and he said, Okay, uh, we're gonna spend uh, the next two weeks switching off between Zoom and Tuple every day for pairing. Would you want to hear the results of that test? And I was like, uh, Yeah, sure. Uh, obviously, that would be great. So it's like someone is basically doing, you know, real competitor analysis in real world use case. It's very possible we'll lose that deal for various reasons. But I think we will learn a ton from it. Because I'm actually in touch with this person, I actually will get that feedback and like, here's where we fell down compared to a competitor or here's where we were, we were better. And here's what you know, ultimately uh, made the difference or was the decision. Very cool. Well, it's been half an hour. This is supposed to be a quick chat, but we could probably talk all day at this rate. So why don't we wrap it here? Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show and letting us know what you're up to. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about Tuple and maybe learn about your launch when it happens? Sure. Um, if you are looking for a pair programming app, uh, chances are you're going to be hearing this uh, right around when we're launching or possibly after. So tuple.app, T-U-P-L-E, is our website. That's the best place to go for that. If you're interested in the podcast that Cortland mentioned earlier, that's called The Art of Product, artofproductpodcast.com. And I'm R00K on Twitter if you need some hot takes. All right. Thanks so much, Ben. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Quick note for listeners, if you're interested in coming on the podcast like Ben to have a quick chat with me, go to indiehackers.com slash milestones and post a milestone about what you're working on. It can be pretty much anything. People have posted milestones about launching or finding their first customer. They've posted about growing their mailing list or hitting 1,000 followers on Twitter. They've posted about getting to 100 or $1,000 or $100,000 a month in revenue. The sky is the limit. So whatever you're proud of, come celebrate it on indiehackers.com slash milestones. And other indie hackers will help you celebrate. We love encouraging each other and supporting each other when we hit these milestones. And what I will do is at the end of every week, I'll look at the top milestones posted and reach out to a few people to invite them to come on the podcast for a quick chat. So once again, that's indiehackers.com slash milestones. I'm looking forward to seeing what you post.